Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. My guest is veteran food writer Peter Kaminsky. He joins us to talk about how we can eat food that is both good for you and gratifying. That's the subject of his new book, Culinary Intelligence, The Art of Eating Healthy and Really Well. Peter Kaminsky, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I have to start this way. Uh, Most people who are talking about having food that is good for you and gratifying are kind of skinny beanpole people that, you know, eat celery as a snack and, you know, talk about how great it is. (laughs) And I just need for people to understand the context in which you work. Uh, If they're not familiar with your work as a food writer, you are surrounded always by fabulous food. Tell us about it. Well, if you're a food... You know, I'm getting kind of echo in my cans here. I can't, uh, um, I keep hearing an echo. So I don't know if we can deal with that or should I just keep talking? Uh, Keep talking and they'll work on it now that you've told us. (laughs) Okay, great. Um, You might Uh, take your headphones off while you're talking and then just try to listen for me to yelling through them after you finish. (laughs) Okay, that's an idea. So the question was, I'm surrounded by food all the time, and how do I deal with it? Yeah, well, also, I want people to understand how you're surrounded by food, like, you know, because it's, it's part well, of your when life. You become a f- I, when I became a food writer, I uh, first thing I did, I was writing the Underground Gourmet for New York Magazine, and that required me doing reviews. And New York is a great place to write about uh, our cornucopia of ethnic food. I, I think it's the best dining city in the world. Uh, but New Yorkers tend to think uh, a lot about their city in, in, in that kind of way. Um, so I used to eat at restaurants, you know, three, four times a week trying to write reviews. Um, and then I sort of got into the uh, – I got the uh, – I cornered the market on 8,000-word uh, stories about the making of big grand restaurants. So Danielle and Le Cirque and Per Se and uh, – uh, gee, I don't know what all, Alain Ducasse, I would write about these really great fine dining restaurants. It was a blast. I got to eat the best food on earth. Um, and I also put on about five inches on my waist and about, you know, 40 pounds on the scale. Uh, so there was an upside and a downside, or two upsides. The upside was enjoyment. The other upside was weight. And I had to do something about that. Uh, were you yourself concerned about it? Uh or you just thought, well, you know, I'll deal with it at some point? I think like most people who have a potential problem, I said, I'll deal with it at some point. You know, I was having too good a time. But then it came time for me to get my life insurance renewed. And uh, uh, they said, boy, you've got a problem here. Um, Your blood sugar is way high. You are pre-diabetic. And maybe you can uh, deal with this by taking off some weight. Which I did, and I we, we could talk about how I did that, but I did get the life insurance, and I'm not diabetic. So I want to get the contrast with what size you were uh, before you had this uh, personal uh, health crisis and now where you are before we get into how you did it. All right. I was uh, – I, I, I topped out at 205. Um, my waist, I you know, uh, as people – tend to do when they have 38-inch waist or larger than 30-inch, 8-inch waist. I convinced myself it was 38, but it was bigger. Um, you know, my neck size was uh, 17 and a half. So I was a, a chunky boy. <laughs> and now? Now 15 and a half on the neck, uh, 34. Um, and that's being generous, maybe a little bit less uh, on the waist. And I'm 166 pounds. All right. Uh, now, before we go on, are you still hearing the echo? I am not. I'm just hearing your wonderful voice. Okay, thank you. Uh, what you have uh, put together in terms of your philosophy and um, methodology, if you will, about how to get that weight off, uh, and the pillar, as you say, of culinary intelligence is really talking about flavor. And that's where you say uh, people have gone wrong. And as a person like you who is around food all the time, that's your whole life, I mean, you know about flavor. So tell us about what your flavor methodology is all about and why you know, based on what's happening with you, uh, that it works. Okay. Well, I, I call it flavor per calorie. I mean, when 
uh, and really what it what it boils down to is, I think a couple of things. Uh, you know, on the minus side, get rid of processed ingredients uh, because a they're going to put on weight very quickly. They turn to sugar in your bloodstream. You store it as fat, and often you're going to have to compensate for the lack of flavor in those ingredients. I'm talking about white sugar, white flour. Uh, often potatoes, sodas. Um, often you'll compensate with, you know, a lot of sugar, a lot of salt, a lot of fat, a lot of fruity sauces, a lot of creamy stuff, a lot of melted cheese. And yes, you'll get flavor, but you're also going to get fat. My approach is buy the best ingredients you can afford. And that ain't all foie gras. You know, that's whatever's cheap in the farmer's market because it's in season this week. Uh, it's things like beans and lentils. They, you know, pumped up with some great flavor like from anchovies or even a little bit of bacon or some capers or some grated Parmesan cheese. These things have very intense flavor and things with very intense flavor will tend to satisfy you, satisfy you more quickly. Uh, and therefore, you'll need less. I mean, this is a scientific fact. I... Uh, Mine is not a science book full of uh, footnotes, but I have talked to all the top nutritionists uh, in America, uh, from Yale, from Harvard, from NYU, and uh, it's just a fact. You can satisfy yourself quicker with better ingredients. You also have to prepare them well. So I guess another uh, pillar of uh, culinary intelligence is cook or live with someone who does, Mm -hmm. Um, because then you can make it taste good. And... Great as restaurants are, and I love restaurants, and I've learned so much from the restaurant chefs I've worked with and written books with. If you eat out every night and you just order the thing that sounds most yummy on the menu, uh, whether it's uh, you know a hamburger joint or uh, you know a pretty pricey restaurant, you're not going to lose weight. It's just not going to happen. So, uh, best ingredients you can afford, prepare them well. You're going to lose weight. Um, here's a quote from your book, eating fruits and vegetables because they are said to be good for you, in quotes, won't do the trick. Eating them because they taste good will. Um, but it's a hard shift, I think, if you've become, and people do become, addicted really to the sugar that you talk about that is so dangerous. Well, the thing with, with especially with fruits, uh uh, animals, and I, I include uh, most of us in that category, we like sugar because sugar is quick energy. Um, if you just eat sugar, like in fruit juice or in a candy bar, straight to your bloodstream, uh, you know, spikes the blood sugar, pumps out insulin, you start to store it as fat. Um, sugar in fruit has got fiber. Uh, and fiber slows down the absorption of sugar into your bloodstream. You produce less insulin. You store less of that excess sugar as fat. So I'm all for fruit, uh, and I'm all for grapefruit. Great, not grapefruit, although I like grapefruit too. <laughs> um, but you know, people who think they're getting the benefits of uh, fruit out of fruit juice are kidding themselves. Because largely, it's sugar with a couple of nutrients thrown in for sure, but no fiber. So, you know, in terms of what it's doing to your blood sugar, you could be, you know, a juice fast and a root beer fast are, uh, you know, not not that different (laughs) in the effect on your weight. Now, you're not the first person who's, you know, said, listen, you need to stop eating white foods like the white sugar, the flour, and the potatoes, though you've written about it quite Uh, entertainingly in your book about why it's necessary. Here's the thing that I thought was uh, a really bold statement in your book. You said fat was really not the issue as much as sugar is. Uh, Talk about that, if you will. Well, fat became a boogeyman, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And carbs uh, uh, became the, uh, you know, the the, the cure, the cure-all. Well, turns out simple carbs turn to sugar uh, almost quicker than sugar, sometimes quicker than sugar in your bloodstream. So that way, you know, eschewing fat and going for carbs, uh, that corresponds precisely when the uh, epidemic of obesity took off like crazy in America. You, human beings need fat. If we didn't have fat, you know, our cells wouldn't work. 
Beyond that, fat is uh, uh, tremendously important for the proper functioning of the nervous system and the brain. And if humans didn't evolve to eat fat, uh, which they do because they have those teeth that took a million years to get right, to be eating meat and uh, the fat that it contains, um, we'd have the brains of chimps, plain and simple. Um, it is good for you. Now, there are certain kinds of fats that are better and certain kind of fats that are worse. You don't want, you know, a lot of saturated fats. You don't want hydrogenated fats. But well-raised animals um, uh, have a high proportion of unsaturated fat. In fact, the pigs that they eat in the west of Spain, where they make the greatest ham on earth, um, they eat grasses and acorns a lot. They're nearly 70% unsaturated fat. Uh, so it is not going to do the tremendous damage to you. That said, fats per gram have twice the amount of calories as uh, carbohydrates and protein. So you are ingesting more calories when you eat fat. So you have to balance, uh, like everything else, you have to balance your diet. There's no magic bullet here. If you cut out fat, you're cutting out a vital, vital, vital nutrient for human beings. Uh, but if you eat all fat and uh, no complex carbohydrates like you find in whole vegetables uh, and no proteins, um, you will not be eating a balanced diet. You're going to have cravings and it ain't going to work out. All right. So – what do you have to have in your pantry or what is in your pantry to make everything taste good uh, and to keep that weight off and you've kept it off? And why is this working better than maybe a, what's been out there on the marketplace before? Well, we'll talk about it. We're talking about food, about eating and how to create healthy eating habits without doing away with the fun and pleasure that comes with food. My guest is Peter Kaminsky. His new book is Culinary Intelligence, The Art of Eating Healthy and Really Well. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Funding for our programs comes from you and Skinner Auctioneers and Appraisers presenting their auction of science, technology, and clocks Saturday, June 2nd at their Marlboro Gallery, featuring an English fossil collection and prominent watch and clock collections, SkinnerInc.com. And the English Channel on WGBH 44. Wednesdays, catch Lark Rise to Candleford, Doc Martin, and Waking the Dead. It's drama with a British accent every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night on WGBH 44. And the growing number of WGBH sustainers who manage their contributions to public radio with the help of monthly installments and automatic renewals. Learn more about the ease of sustaining membership at WGBH.org. Two big environmental no-nos, food scraps dumped in landfills and methane gas emissions coming from dairy farms. One Massachusetts farm is turning those two negatives into a big positive. We get enough gas out of the system to run a 300 kilowatt engine, which is basically producing electricity for the farm as well as about 300 houses. I'm Tony Waterman. The story of food to fuel later today on WGBH's All Things Considered. If you're looking for something that's cool and sweet and sprinkled with fun, the WGBH Fun Fest is all that with a cherry on top. Saturday, July 14th at WGBH in Brighton. It's a day hand-packed with ice-creamy goodness. Mix it up with PBS Kids characters, swirl in some rides, games, music, and more. It's enough to make you melt. Tickets will sell out, and that's a sure bet, so don't waffle. Get the whole scoop at WGBH.org slash funfest while you still cone. Uh, sorry. MIT's 100K Entrepreneurship Competition has generated billions in profit in its 23-year history. Hear what ideas this year's competitors came up with on Innovation Hub, Saturday morning at 7 here on WGBH Radio. Welcome back to The Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, my guest is food writer Peter Kaminsky. One of his occupational hazards was putting on weight. Once the weight started to take a toll on his health, he devised a way to lose weight and keep it off without giving up the fun of food. It's the subject of his new book, Culinary Intelligence, The Art of Eating Healthy and Really Well. 
So, Peter Kaminsky, um, I anybody listening now, and I certainly have had this experience, and I'm, you must have had it, you start trying to go down the path of eating better, and those cravings overtake you because, as you've very pointedly written in your book, that sugar is really quite addictive and hard to sort of get out of everything that you eat unless you pay close, close attention. And even when you pay close, close attention, you're still trying to deal with the cravings. I want to know how long did it take for you uh, to get rid of those cravings uh, once you had determined to make a change? It wasn't all that hard. Uh but it's not magic. It's not a magic switch. For example, I had one thing I had to get out of my diet or cut way, way back on. I'm a writer. I sit home. I type all morning. I live in Brooklyn. These are two important facts to, to bear in mind. I sit at home and type all morning. You know, come whatever, 11, 12, 1, 2 o'clock. I'm so hungry. I can't stand it anymore. So for, for years, I would just go out. I uh, have a million pizza shops in my neighborhood. I'd go out for a slice of pizza. Well, one slice of pizza is not what you end up getting when you go out for a slice of pizza. You always eat two, at least. <laughs> and eventually, my brother, who's a doctor, did the math for me. And uh, on that diet of pizza pretty much every you know working day of the week and two slices of it, I was consuming enough extra calories that every seven days I was eating uh, what's required for uh, eight and a half days. That's going to put on the weight. So I, I, I cut out the pizza. Uh, I'll now eat it occasionally because I love it. It's one of the life's great joys. But it, it, I got rid of it as my everyday thing. Other people have other things. Maybe it's uh, ice cream every day, you know. Uh, you know, before, uh, after dinner as a, as a reward for being a, a good eater or a good person or a good whatever. Um, so we all have a target of opportunity that we have to give up. I won't say you don't miss it, but I'll also say you can control it, or I could, and I think many people can. It takes a little willpower. Uh, but then if you're substituting it with really wonderful food, uh, it's not as hard. For example, I and Arthur, uh, Dr. Uh, Arthur Agatson, who uh, wrote The South Beach Diet, we both eat a little bit of dark chocolate every day sort of as a topper offer. It is full of things that satisfy you. It's got what they call umami. It's got a little bit of sugar. Uh, it's got a little bit of fat. Um, but the flavor is so intense uh, and your and your your taste buds and your and your tummy knows it. It it really goes a long way to satisfy you. So if you take those few squares of chocolate and eat them, you'd be surprised how little you want after that. So that kind of works for me. Uh, but now, I do want to. You I'm, mentioned I'm sorry, umami, and I I want you to go back and talk about that because that's the what a lot of people call the fifth sense. Uh, explain that if you would. Okay. Well. I had no idea what the heck it was. I've read about it everywhere. And uh, there is a great chef in New York named Dan Barber. He also raises a lot of uh, his food up at uh, Stone Barns uh, for agriculture in New York. He's a real hero of, uh, of, of, of sustainable farming and just great, simple, but delicious cooking. Anyway, one day I'd eaten a great chicken, and, and I called up Dan and I said, you know, Dan, your sauces are different than other people's sauces. It's not all these complex layer, layer, layering of flavors. It's chicken. I don't know what makes it, but it's chicken, chicken, chicken. And I said, how do you do it? And he said, well, we make a stock and we break it three times. And I said, I have no idea what the heck you're talking about. So he said, come on into my restaurant one morning. And my daughter and I went there. And he was roasting these chicken carcasses and boiling chickens, whole chickens. And then he would take that stuff and he'd put it and then he, he, he uh, with really high heat he'd roast off at very high heat these chicken drumettes and he'd put some of that liquid in and let it uh, reduce down till and that's where the breaking part comes in it came to the breaking point which means it, it got so thick if you took your fork and try to move those chicken pieces away from the side of the, the pan you get those little strings like you do with pizza that's the breaking point you let it go further than that, it all falls apart. He'd put more um, liquid, and he'd do that three times, and he'd reduce it. Every time, it tasted more and more and more and more chickeny. Mm. 
And finally, when it was done, you know, like when you laugh really hard, you get that feeling on the side of your temples, like from just your smile muscles are overworked. That's what it felt like. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I, I, you know, I had no idea what the taste was. And I said, that must be umami. Mm. It's that sense of great satisfaction and well-being that I later learned we pick up as uh, when protein, which is a very important nutrient, is really readily accessible to us. Um, and the cooking it well, that, that makes that protein accessible to us. So I invited one of the great scientists, uh, Charles Zucker uh, from Columbia, who discovered the taste bud uh, for um, taste receptor for uh, uh, umami down to eat with me. And uh, we didn't eat the chicken, but I said, would you guys bring me some chicken sauce? And I said, Charles, what is the taste here? And he said, umami. So that's why, that's how I know ah. it's umami. But umami is in anchovies. Well, it's in meat. It, believe it or not, it's in tomatoes. And there's a an interesting evolutionary story there. And, you know, umami means things taste more delicious. In fact, it's a Japanese word that means means yummy. And tomatoes get umami just when they're ripe. Two days before, they don't have it. When they're ripe, they taste so delicious. And that's why animals eat them. And eventually, you know, poop out their seeds somewhere else. And then there's more tomato plants. So it's a great thing for the tomatoes to do for their, um, for their future. Parmesan cheese has a lot of umami. Um, uh, sausages have umami. Bacon has umami. Bacon is in my diet. Uh, but not a lot of it, as you point out. Not, that's the point. Mm -hmm. If, you know... Get to the end of the winter, you've eaten, you want to eat fresh vegetables, you've eaten a lot of kale, you know, by then, you need Brussels sprouts, you need something to give it some oomph. And the, the salt and the uh, umami and the protein and the funk of ageness and a little bit of bacon is really going to pump up the flavor and everything. So, bacon, when it's used as an ingredient to enhance other ingredients, I just think is one of life's treasures. Bacon, you know, a lot, a lot of bacon and a glob of cheese to rescue, you know, uh, dry as bones uh, chicken breast. It ain't going to help your diet. It ain't going to help your weight. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not the right way to use this jewel of cuisine. So if uh, all the flavors are at their peak or you increase, uh, look toward the flavor calorie profile, as you say, and um, look for those foods that have that umami, then you're naturally fuller, faster, with less. That is true. I can prove it to you. I mean, I've done this experiment many, many times. If I give you a great aged ribeye steak, or I give you, you know, sort of a pound and a half steak of, uh, you know, feedlot, normal, not aged, just great, you know, B-flat steak, strip steak, three slices of that ribeye, you're going to really feel satisfied. You're going to eat that whole other steak. You're going to feel full, but you haven't gotten your full steakness out of it. And, uh, I mean, try it yourself. You'll see what I'm saying. Now, one of the tricks with steaks, um, and in fact, all meats, is what's called the Maillard reaction. And that's simply the way the proteins break down on a steak or on any piece of meat when it's exposed to high heat, and they form hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flavor co compounds in the crust. And that just makes it so delicious and so satisfying. Whereas ill-cooked meat or uncooked meat, I mean, I, I could give you uncooked uh, pork, lamb, beef, um, you know, veal. If it were raw... Scientists tell me, and I've verified it for myself, you're probably not going to be able to tell which is which. You might, though, they're a little bit different. But when you cook them and when you put that beautiful crust that, that the Maillard reaction creates, the flavors get so complex that you're really satisfied in a, in a hundred different ways. So that's, that's where the cooking side of uh, the good ingredients comes in, too. I wanted to note that you uh, took time to list some of the common ingredients that you ought to have always on hand. Um, you did allow that people could, you know, make some adjustments to it. But, but these are the things that 
uh, will keep you from going over the edge and toward the sugar and eventually will probably just block out all your craving for the sugar. So here they are. Onions, anchovies, sardines, herring, good chicken and beef stocks, plain yogurt, bacon, Italian sausage, butter, butter, we'll have to talk about that, eggs, capers, roasted sweet red peppers, a hunk of Parmesan cheese, as you've mentioned, olive oil, crushed red pepper flakes, flaky sea salt, beans, lentils, chickpeas, whole grain, couscous, and farro, hard drum similita pasta, uh, farro pasta, good tasting whole grain bread, really whole grain, you're very... You give us a whole lot about that in the book. Whole grain crackers, thick, crunchy wasa bread or a thinner, equally crunchy akmak, love akmak. Uh, caponata, greens, apples, blueberries, dried cranberries, dried prunes, figs, cherries, roasted almonds, roasted pe- peanuts, cashews, pecans, and of course the aforementioned dark chocolate. Now your point in listing this is that if you have this in your on hand, then you're less likely to run to something else. And you can always make some combination of these foods into something that tastes really good, thereby achieving the flavor calorie pr- profile. Well, yeah, they, they, all of them will help pump up flavor per calorie. And if you have them around your house, I mean, look, let's face it, you boil some lentils. Uh, I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, a Woody Allen uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, put down of, you know, California health food. I mean, it probably does taste like mashed yeast, like you said in Annie Hall. <laughs> but with some tom- roasted tomatoes, a little bit of Parmesan, maybe some capers, maybe, you know, a little bit of bacon, ma- you know, a little red wine, a little vinegar, it's a great dish, you know. And then you then you have some greens maybe, you know, they've been s- sitting in the refrigerator for, you know, four days or so. You saute those, you mix that all together. That's a great meal. So I think if you have those kinds of things on hand, you have the, the building blocks, uh, you know, to deal with, you know, ever so many ingredients. Also, you roast the chicken, say, on Sunday. Well, I never roast a chicken. I roast two chickens because it takes about as long and it, they're both equally delicious. And then you've got leftovers all week. Well, these things in my larder help me to prepare other dishes with chicken. I can make a farro risotto with it. I could saute it with some onions and, uh, you know, have it, have, have it with some pasta. Then there are a few things just like sardines and the crackers or, you know, the sweet peppers. You know, you don't know what the heck to do for lunch and you're sitting there. Um, those are great. You don't have to do a darn thing to them but open them and eat them together, and you've got a meal that's even faster than, uh, than uh, you know, uh, a Big Mac uh, to prepare or go get. So, you know, these are all important things. You asked about uh, butter. I want to come back to that. I love butter. Butter <laughs> is great. Yeah. <laughs> I just, just all butter all the time, like all anything all the time, isn't going to do you a lot of good. But, for example... Sometimes, you know, I like breakfast once or twice a week. I used to like bagels and lox a lot. But bagels are all white, you know, flour, basically. And, you know, that's, that's going to g- become sugar right away. Let me just say, I ain't against sugar. I'm just against pure sugar or things that become sugar right away in your bloodstream. So, you know, Danny Meyer, the great restaurateur, owns Union Square Cafe and Gramercy uh, Tavern and so on. He was telling me he used to have, you know, those bagels every day. And, you know, he cut them out and he really brought his weight together. Well, I still like my something in locks. So I get really good dark bread like, you know, the Scandinavians do. Uh, You know, and if I can't find really great, I buy some whole wheat bread in the supermarket and I I just toast it. Put a little bit of butter on it, you know, that gives it a little bit of oil to make it you know, kind of wet and moist, uh, but it's not like slathered on. And then a slice of smoked salmon. Darn, that's a good breakfast. <laughs> it sure it sounds like it. My guest is food writer Peter Kaminsky. Um, now, you've got a couple of advantages on the rest of us who are uh, would be totally interested in your book. And I can say, having read it, it's really entertaining. And I've read a lot of books about food and how to lose weight and how to do this and that, and believe me. But this one is it's really quite well done. Of course, it would be. You did it. Um, so you cook, and you have a flexible lifestyle. Uh, 
And I, you know, at one point in your book, you talked about, you know, going from this point to this point in your neighborhood, picking up, you know, the the fresh uh, meat and the and the fresh greens. And, you know, you don't do that every day, but you could do it because you have a because of your lifestyle. I kept comparing and contrasting that with me and many people I know. We get home at you know, whatever time we get home, we're exhausted, we're evil, we're tired. And the last thing I'm trying to do is find something in there that has the correct thing for me to eat. I just want to shove something in my mouth. This is not correct. I know you've told me in a whole book, but, you know, how, how, you know it's hard. Well, <laughs> he, here's what I think. It's like, like I was saying with the, um, the two chickens, when you make something, make a lot of it. Uh, because then you can get two, three meals out of it, and it doesn't require, and Sunday's a great day for doing that, it doesn't require a whole lot of, of you know, cooking every day. Uh, tossing together, together a salad uh, and putting some sliced steak on it that you've made a few days before, that's not what's going to take, you know, all, all, all that cooking time. You know, you don't need to cook a Martha Stewart or a Julia Child, you know, soup to nuts dinner every night to eat well. Couple of great vegetables, slice of whole grain bread and some protein that you've really made well. Hey, pasta ain't bad. You know, we all like to make pasta. It's just in America, we've come to eat pasta like people think nothing of eating a half pound of pasta with a little bit of sauce on it. That's true. My solution is make a four ounce serving or there's two of you, make a half a pound Make sure you have equal by volume uh, vegetables to pasta. So four ounces of pasta, four ounces of vegetables that you sauteed, that you crumbled some bacon in, that you threw some olives in, that you grated some Parmesan cheese over. Uh, I'm pretty sure, because it became this way with me, that's going to do it for me. Not a big meal to make. Again, it's a you know not a, it's 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 less than a twenty minute meal, and you should have that. Now, l- listen, if you need to come in, turn on the TV, <laughs> put your feet up, and then graze all night and finish it with ice cream, uh, you have a, you have a problem. Um, and if that means giving up something, you have to give up twenty minutes uh, to eat a little bit better. I make a thing called a frittata, which is like, you know, a big big old baked omelet, you know, and I'll put, uh, oh, some, you know, crisp onions in it. Or maybe I got some asparagus, you know, when I bought asparagus on the green market, instead of buying one bunch, I bought two, stuck some olive oil, some salt, put them in the oven for 15 minutes, they're roasted, they're at their peak of flavor. So come Wednesday, I don't know what to make. I got some asparagus left over, I dice it up. I throw it in my frittata. I put some Parmesan cheese on top. Again, that takes about five minutes to do. You put it in the oven, and you've got a frittata that'll last you a couple days' worth of meals. So, yeah, it, re- it requires a little bit of an attitude adjustment, but it doesn't mean you're going to be like a farmhouse wife from 1824, you know, digging out your turnips and then cooking all day, you know, over a kettle, over a fire. You, you can... You can do it quickly if you do it smart. And I should mention there are 14 recipes in the back of the book, and they look delicious, and they are not complicated, which is wonderful. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't didn't say, because you mentioned earlier that these are ingredients one can get at, you know, any common market, though, you know, you have access in Brooklyn to everything uh, that one would want if you were making a fantasy meal. Uh, but, you know, the, one of the issues that with this obesity and then the, the byproduct of that diabetes is that so many people who are low incomes are struggling around this because what's around them, of course, is is the easy stuff, the sugar stuff that we've discussed. And it's harder to find even uh, the simple ingredients that you've just named here. Um, what kind of comment can you make about that, uh, Peter Kaminsky? Well, I have a few. Listen, uh we're all surrounded by this commercial culture that, you know, you turn, I mean, I watch a lot of football. I once did a calorie count of the stuff that was being, you know, offered on the commercials. I think I could have done 23,000 calories if I ate everything that was on a typical NFL game. So, you know, we're being bombarded at all sides, you know, from childhood to, to, uh, you know, to toothlessness of, you know, with, um, 
this culture that says, buy me, eat me, it's easy, it's fun, it's rock and roll, I'm going to date girls or date <laughs> boys, whatever with it. Um, so, yes, you have to dial out so, some of that marketing noise. Um, that said, uh, I, I know all, listen, there were 4,500 green markets in America when I started writing this book. There's nearly 8,000 now, and that's a course of three years. So we're seeing, seeing, we're seeing more of those, and I know in New York City, we're seeing more and more and more of them. There's like so-called food deserts in the Bronx that now have these green carts that once you offer it to people, they're buying it. They're, they're tremendously successful. All that said, you know, sometimes you just got to look and shop. Um, we were in Rockford, Illinois, where my wife is from one Thanksgiving, and someone forgot to bring the vegetables which happens at family Thanksgivings. There's a you know, cross line of communication. And so I went down to you know, the, the part of town where you know, a lot of Latinos live because like most of farmland America, you know, most of what's you know, picked on our farms is this you know, wonderful influx, influx of these you know, magnificent uh, people from south of the border who keep our tables stocked. And they have their own little grocery stores. And these ethnic grocery stores have, you know, they have beans, they have, you know, their vegetables that they like, they have yucca, they have uh, jicama. So um, you can find it, in other words. Y- you can, you get, yeah, yeah, any committed. big city yeah. bodega, yeah. You, can, you can find stuff. Okay. Um, right. Not as simple as the supermarket, but it's there. I think that's called uh, using a little... Uh, Culinary Intelligence, and that would be the name of your book. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to me, Peter Kaminsky. And the book is Culinary Intelligence, The Art of Eating Healthy and Really Well. Um, It's a great book, and thanks so much. You're the best. Thank you. Coming up, we continue the conversation with the authors of the official Game of Thrones cookbook and the cuisine that was cooked up in the Dark Ages. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. We love our contributors. That means you. And Greenberg Traurig, an international law firm with offices in Boston and more than 30 other cities worldwide, addressing the complex legal needs of businesses from startups to public companies. Global reach, local resources. G2Law.com. And SNH Construction. Yeah, SNH Construction uses all the WGBH multimedia formats. Doug Hanna, partner. We feel that it's really important to get our name out to WGBH radio listeners, and I feel that it's going to have a cumulative effect of just name recognition and some work. To learn more, visit WGBH.org sponsorship. Two big environmental no-nos, food scraps dumped in landfills and methane gas emissions coming from dairy farms. One Massachusetts farm is turning those two negatives into a big positive. We get enough gas out of the system to run a 300 kilowatt engine, which is basically producing electricity for the farm as well as about 300 houses. I'm Tony Waterman. The story of food to fuel later today on WGBH's All Things Considered. For 47 years now, the WGBH Spring Auction has been your chance to pick up some amazing deals. Welcome, welcome at last, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Channel 2 Auction. This year, you can bid on a brand new Toyota Prius, donated by your New England Toyota dealers. Bigger and better than ever. Every winning bid supports WGBH radio and television. If you have stamina and strong eyesight, stay with us. Bid high, bid often, but hurry. The Spring Auction ends May 31st. Place your bids now at auction.wgbh.org. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. We're talking about food and cooking today. Joining me to talk about dining for the dark ages are Chelsea Monroe Castle and Sarah Ann Larry. They are the authors of the new Lehrer. I get that right, Sarah Ann Lehrer. They are the authors of the new cookbook, A Feast of Ice and Fire, the official Game of Thrones companion cookbook. Chelsea and Sarah Ann, welcome. 
Hi, thanks for having us. Uh, every time I mention this cookbook to people I just really didn't even think knew what was going on, they were so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the uh, power of Game of Thrones, and, and what you're doing is so uh, wonderful uh, for those fans. Let me just tell people who don't know about it that it's a cable television series on HBO. Uh, it follows multiple storylines of a Song of Ice and Fire series, and the author was George R. R. Martin. It's set in the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros. Westeros. Uh, okay. And uh, it chronicles the violent dynastic struggles among the kingdom's noble families for control of the Iron Throne. Okay, so now we know what the series is about, and what you did was write the cookbook looking at the foods that uh, author Martin put in his books and now are a part of the cable series. You got to say, uh, were you just sitting around? Were you just big fans of uh, Game of Thrones and decided, hey, let's let's write up the recipes? That's actually exactly what happened. <laughs> uh, we were trying to decide what to have for dinner one night, and uh, I don't remember what we actually decided on for dinner, but we decided that we had to have lemon cakes for dessert, so... Uh, we looked around and couldn't really find anything that seemed to fit, but uh, tried out a few recipes and really had a lot of fun researching and trying new things in quest of the ultimate lemon cake. Uh, and the lemon cakes are tied to a character, so I'm going to let you talk about that. <laughs> they are. They're tied to Sansa Stark, and throughout George's books, he uses food as a literary device to build his characters and the settings, and the sweetness of the lemon cake really uh, describes Sansa very well up until a certain point. And after that point where she kind of loses her innocence and everything goes down the drain for her, really, uh, we don't really see her eat any lemon cakes anymore. <laughs> yeah, I hear that uh, it, it speaks to her naivete. She's a little bit naive early on. She is, yes. Uh, we should mention that this uh, series is a little bit violent and, uh, you know, got a lot of swords going on and people dying right and left. So uh, that's about the moment, the last moment of her innocence, as you said. Uh, now, so you go from making the lemon cakes, writing this, then putting together a, a fabulous blog that became so popular. Tell us about that. Sure. Uh, our blog is inatthecrossroads.com, and uh, it's just sort of snowballed out of control, as we like to say. We never really expected it to be this big. We never expected to get a cookbook deal out of it. Uh, we really were just doing it because we're big fans, and we really enjoy the books, and the descriptions of food were too mouthwatering to not try to make. Um, and we've gotten great fan feedback. Um, We've developed our own mini fan fandom, I guess, uh, <laughs> of fictional food. And so it's really, it's great. All right. It's not quite as easy as just whipping up any old cookbook uh, because there's some research involved and some other stuff and some testing. I want to make it clear to everybody, you just didn't make up some recipes. These are tested in your Alston kitchen. Not only are they tested, but most of them are based off of age-old recipes from the Middle Ages or... Elizabethan England or Victorian England or ancient Rome. And so those have obviously been cooked since ancient Rome <laughs> up until now. Uh, most of the dishes we have, we have two recipes. One is for well-suited for the modern palate, so it's something that we developed on our own. And the other one is a historical recipe that we've tweaked a little bit to make it possible to cook in a modern kitchen, kind of put in the measurements and the temperatures that aren't that are pretty absent in historical recipes. Um, that's what makes the book so beautiful. I mean, you have some great pictures in here, but I was drawn to the modern versus the medieval. What's the difference between the recipes? For a number of them, they're almost completely different dishes. Uh, the medieval palate was so different from what we expect in terms of taste profile that it you could serve them and nobody would know that they're the same thing. So, for example, it's just, I, you know, I just keep thinking about a big old leg of meat of something. That's what comes to mind when I think medieval, right? Right. But <laughs> for those particular dishes, those are pretty much cooked the same way now as they were back then. Yeah, okay. So not the greatest example, but if you take the pork pie, mm -hmm. which is a pretty sizable hunk of meat in a pie, um, the medieval pork pie is a lot sweeter. It uses spices that are like nutmeg and cinnamon and currants. So to our to our palate, it's it's more of like an appetizer or a dessert kind of taste than the modern one in which we have cheese and barbecue sauce and apples. So that it really does fit the modern thing. Here's a, here's what I love about the book, uh, and fans will too, that you do the cuisine by the region because there are these 
seven families and they're moving all around, uh, that you have really matched the recipes to even some of the, not only the characters, but the area that the characters come from. Yeah, that uh, (laughs) that was something that was really important to us because that's how we organized the blog. And we felt that it would really be neat to make the cookbook sort of like a culinary tour of Westeros. And so if you want to eat something from, uh, you know, King's Landing, you can just flip to the appropriate color in the cookbook uh, on the edge of the page and pick either a dessert or an appetizer, soup, you know, what have you. Um, And I think that it's also really great, as you said, to uh, be able to read the excerpt from the books and see which character ate that meal and when and uh, just sort of strengthens that connection to the books. I'm going to play a, a little clip from the HBO series, and this is just a short one, with one of the characters describing who he is, and you can tell me about his region and what you mm-hmm. have in the book that matches where he came from. Sure. So here we go. I, Eddard, the House Stark, Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, Sentence you to die. All right, so there we go. Got the Stark sentencing some sentencing somebody to die, Lord of Winterfell. Tell me about his cuisine. Sure. <laughs> uh, I think that the Starks and the cuisine of the North, uh, including the Wall, sometimes uh, is some of the best in the books. Uh, it's better suited to winter, obviously. Winter is coming, uh, <laughs> but. That's only because it's a lot of meat pies, roasts, things like that. Um, But they do have a fair number of desserts as well and some quirky, tasty salads. Um, But among the, uh, and you can help me remember here, we've got like pork pies, beef and bacon pies, um, turnips swimming in butter. um, This picture of breakfast looks pretty good to me. Yes. Two eggs, six strips of bacon. I, you know, okay, sounds pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right. So people need to know, since you're testing these recipes, and we've said it's medieval cuisine, that, you know, sometimes you have a pig head in your apartment. <laughs> that did happen. Yes. Yes, it did. <laughs> you should mention. <laughs> uh, yeah. We are local Stabenor's butcher provided us with a pig's head and I went to town on it and made some nice head cheese. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How, obviously you've expanded your palate since since doing this cookbook, right? Oh, absolutely. Vastly. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay, so what what would you have eaten before and now you don't think anything about? Probably a pig's head. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, we have a rule that uh, one of us, if not both of us, has to try everything that we put on the blog. Um and so, you know, we don't just make it and say, you know, we made it, hands off, good luck. Uh, we say, we tried it. It was a little weird. This is what it's like. Uh, you know, if you'd like to try it, here's the recipe. Um, crickets, I think, never would have occurred to me before. But we definitely did that. Um, they weren't bad. They weren't bad. Well, some of those uh, uh, people on Survivor have eaten a few crickets. So, you know, you're in good company there. Um, I I really think of you two. And and let me just say you're Chelsea Monroe Castle and Sarian Lehrer and the authors of the new cookbook, A Feast of Ice and Fire, the official Game of Thrones companion cookbook. I think of you as sort of the medieval Julie Powell. (laughs) How do you feel about that? (laughs) Uh, It's terrific. It's it's sort of a similar story arc, I think, but uh, unexpected. You know, because it's blog to cookbook to quirky niche fame. I don't know. uh... (laughs) There you go. So um, I've mentioned that this is the official cookbook with George R.R. Martin's foreword in here. There is floating about out there, don't be confused, people, an unofficial book without his approval. Tell me how you got to him and therefore ended up writing this cookbook. We actually emailed George Martin. And just to let him know that we had started this blog, I think we did last May, sent him an email. And uh, he was very gracious. Uh, He wrote us back and praised the work we had done so far. At that point, we just had maybe a few months into the blog, but we uh, had been really going great guns at cooking as much as we could fit into our schedules. Um, And uh, he cautioned us away from some of the weirder things like seagull, but, oh, good. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, if we could get it, we'd cook it. Some people in different places, you know, of the world um, 
say, well, why, why haven't you cooked this? You know, we have this every Saturday. And I say, well, we can't get that here. I'm sorry, <laughs> but you can do a guest post. Um, and George Martin actually brought us to the attention of his publishers. Um, and so we owe him a great debt of gratitude to not for not only writing the books and giving us such great descriptions of food, but also for snagging us a cookbook deal. Yeah, fabulous opportunity. Cool. So what's been the most fun? It's tough to narrow it down. The whole thing has just been mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't ask, like, we live with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we have five roommates in the house, and we it's been amazing. I mean, for the whole house, it's been amazing. Meeting George was incredible. Yeah. All right. Uh, the most odd thing that's happened while you've been preparing these interesting recipes. We got a marriage proposal. That's oh! True. That was really early on, too. That was, that was early on. Yeah. From one of the uh, fictional lords in the Seven Dynasties or no, a real person? Like, that would be great. <laughs> well, will you at some point get a chance to meet the cast? I love Peter Dinklage. You know, come on. That's yeah. my fave. We're hoping to. We'll be at Comic-Con in San Diego in July, and we're hoping that we'll be able to meet some important people out there. All right. Well, is there going to be a book, too? A Feast and Fire of Ice and Fire 2? You know, we would definitely write it if there, uh, there's interest enough. If this one does well. We'd probably have to wait for George to write another book because we uh, probably only have enough recipes for half of another book. But uh, we'd love to explore other fictional cookbooks, all kinds of things, you know. Uh, the sky's the limit at this point, I think. Um, I hear that the other fictional cookbook you want to explore is Harry Potter. <laughs> that would be awesome. It's, I think it's really surprising that there isn't an official Harry Potter cookbook because food is so integral to that as well. I mean, who hasn't wanted butterbeer who's read the books? I want butterbeer right now. I know. I, well, some, I think somebody has yeah. come up with some recipe for one of the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Universal, I don't know which one is, Universal Studios or Disney has mm-hmm. the... Uh, official Harry Potter land and they come up with a butterbeer recipe which they will not share with anybody but the rest of the foods like the invisible beans and stuff it's all open to you (laughs) okay that that one might give us a little trouble okay well I think it's fabulous I love it that you're from here and that you were uh, innovative enough to come up with this the book is fabulous looking and a lot of information in it so congratulations to you thanks so much thank you very much All right. I've been speaking with Chelsea Monroe Castle and Sarah Ann Lehrer they are the authors of the new cookbook a Feast of Ice and Fire, the official Game of Thrones companion cookbook. On June 9th, they'll be doing a book signing and cooking demonstration in Northampton. To learn more, you can find a link to their food blog in at the crossroads on our website, wgba.org slash Callie Crossley. You can follow us on Twitter or become a fan of the Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Jane Pippick, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. The Callie Crossley Show is a production of WGBH Radio.